Before we get into our topic tonight, our first topic for this evening is the United States of America in prophecy. And you might be thinking, really? The United States of America in Bible prophecy? I mean, is that really possible? And perhaps my response should be, but of course. The United States has been a major player in the Christian faith in the last couple of hundred years and is probably the most powerful Christian nation on earth today. And perhaps if the Bible did not mention it, we should be more surprised than if the Bible does mention it. But let's have a look at what the Bible says. We're going to get into this topic. The United States in Bible prophecy. You know, they call the United States the land of the free, and and perhaps it was, and perhaps it still is, but the Bible says there will be a change, and we want to come to that. Before we can do that, we need to look at a little bit of background here. Tonight we're going to go to Revelation chapter 13. We're going to go right to the heart of the book of Revelation, and in Revelation chapter 13, you find two beasts, and you might be looking at that beast and thinking, what on earth is that? Um, it looks pretty weird, right? But once I read the description to you, you'll see why somebody has decided to, to picture it that way. But when you go to the book of Revelation, you find two beasts. One in the first half of Revelation, the other is described in the second half of Revelation. Now before we go anywhere, we want to ask the question, what have we learned so far about what a beast represents in Bible prophecy? You remember when we talked about Daniel chapter 7 and we talked about the Antichrist power? And we, we looked at four beasts. One was like a lion and one was like a bear and one was like a leopard and then there was a terrible beast and each of them represented what? Yeah, kingdoms, nations, powers. Right? They represented kingdoms or nations or political powers. And so we understand from the book of Daniel that that's what a beast represents. So when we look at Revelation 13 and we have two beasts, we're looking at two nations, two political powers here. That's what we're looking at. And we want to identify them. Let's look at the first one. Revelation chapter 13, and we're going to read verses 1 to 3. Then I stood on the sand of the sea. This is John writing. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So it describes this bizarre beast power here. How many beasts is it describing? One, right? But it's saying it has all of these sort of elements. When we read this, if you were here when we talked about the Antichrist power, you may remember that when we talked about Daniel chapter 7, you will remember that there were beasts rising up out of the sea and there was a lion, a bear, a leopard and a terrible beast. Do you remember that? Okay. If we compare Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 13, we notice some striking parallels. Okay? In Daniel 7, you have these four beasts rising up out of the sea. In Revelation 13, it's one beast, but it has all the characteristics of these four beasts. Notice in Daniel, 
Daniel lived at the time of Babylon, some 2,600 years BC. Daniel lived at the time of Babylon. He sees these beasts rising out of the sea. He sees a lion, that's Babylon. He sees a bear, that's Persia. He sees a leopard, that's Greece. And he sees a terrible beast, that represents pagan Rome. He's looking forward in history. John, on the other hand, he lives in the first century AD. He lives at the time of the Roman Empire. And so he sees a beast that's like a leopard, like a bear, like a lion, rising out of the sea. In other words, he's looking back down the corridor of time and he's listing them in the order that they were listed in Daniel. Quite phenomenal. But, of course, John only sees one beast. But what he's trying to get us to see is... When I'm listing the characteristics of this beast, I want you to be thinking of Daniel 7. Because this little horn power that is described in Daniel 7 is the same beast as is recorded in Revelation 13. Notice the similarities apart from the beast. Uh, This has ten horns. There are ten horns here. It speaks great things, speaks blasphemies. Reigns for 1,260 days. How many months do you think that is? Well, it happens to be 42 months because in a biblical year there were 12 months of 30 days. And so it's the same time period. In this one it says this power persecutes the saints. In this one it says it makes war with the saints. And then this one it talks about it changes times and laws. And we're going to talk a little bit more later on about the mark of the beast. But there are many comparisons between the power of Daniel 7 that is uh, recorded and the power listed in Revelation 13. You remember it said that it had seven heads and ten horns. Cast your mind back to Daniel chapter 7. How many heads did the lion have? Just one. How many heads did the bear have? One. How many heads did the leopard have? Four. (laughs) So one, two, three, four. That makes six. And how many heads did the terrible beast have? One. That's seven heads. You get it? Had seven heads. Uh, The lion didn't have any horns, the bear had no horns, the leopard had no horns, but the terrible beast had ten horns. So you have seven heads and ten horns. And it says one of those heads received a deadly wound. Which one would that have been? Well, that would have been the terrible beast. Rome. And... So this is the same beast power, this beast power of Revelation 13 is the same uh, same power as the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. This is the Antichrist power, but it's now pictured as a beast in its own right. It is a nation in its own right. It is a political power. It's also a religious power, but it is a political power. And it says that it received a deadly wound. And when... This power had ruled and reigned for 1,260 years. That came to an end in 1798 and it did indeed receive this deadly wound. And here's the question I want to ask tonight. If it received that deadly wound, this is the papal power in Rome, if it received that deadly wound in 1798, is the wound being healed? Because the Bible says it received a deadly wound and its deadly wound was healed and all the world marvelled and followed the beast. Is the wound being healed tonight? Well, we come forward in history to 1929, which uh, was also the the year of the great stock market crash. But uh, this was the year in which Mussolini and Gasparri signed a historic Roman pact where 
the Vatican made peace with Italy and re-established itself, 1929 in February. The Roman question tonight was a thing of the past and the Vatican was at peace with Italy. In affixing the autographs to the memorable document, healing the wound, extreme cordiality was displayed on both sides. Even the newspaper uses the language of the Bible when it talks about healing the wound. This was the beginning of the healing of the wound. And of course, since that time, uh, the papal power has become very much uh, a, uh, a force to be reckoned with until, uh, this is 2013, uh, Pope Francis had only been in office, I think, about eight months but he was then listed as the person of the year on Time magazine in 2013. And of course, Time magazine is not a religious magazine, it is a news magazine, prominent news magazine of the United States. But the Bible says the deadly wound would be healed and all the world would marvel and follow after the beast. Well, does that just mean all the Catholic world or all the religious world? What we're finding is that this Pope is as uh, more popular than perhaps any other pope in history. This is Rolling Stone magazine. I don't know if you know Rolling Stone magazine, but it typically deals with pop culture, right? And it says here, Pope Francis, the times they are a changing. And that's certainly true. So he, how often would you think that the pope would have appeared on Rolling Stone magazine? Not often, I wouldn't think. And then there's this one, this is The Advocate. I don't know if you know The Advocate. It's a prominent American magazine for the LGBT community. And they have as their person of the year, Pope Francis. Why? Because he says, who am I to judge? And so what I'm trying to say to you is this power is gaining appeal in much wider circles than simply religious circles. Do you get that? And so is the wound being healed today? Yes, I, I believe it is. And of course, uh, Pope Francis has addressed the United Nations. He's a global statesman. The wound is being Healed, And the Bible says, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So this is this first beast power represented in Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 to 10. Notice what it says here in verse 10 of this power. It says, he who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. It describes here where the papacy received its deadly wound and how it went into captivity. It says, he who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. Certainly this power had held many people captive. He who is killed with the sword must be killed with the sword. And certainly it had done that. And so it was mortally wounded, the Bible says. And we know that that took place in 1798. I want to read for you now the very next verse in Scripture because it begins to describe a second beast power. Revelation 13, verse 11, it says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Now we already understand that a beast represents a political power. We've already learned that. But I want you to know some of these other symbols that are being used here in Revelation 13. You have a beast represents a kingdom or a nation. Water represents multitudes of people. But this second beast comes up out of the earth, which would represent the opposite, would represent a sparsely populated place. The horns represent a symbol of power in the Bible. The lamb, what do you think the lamb represents in the Bible? Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ is described as the lamb of God. 
And then the dragon, well, that represents the devil and Satan. So when we read this verse, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. It's telling us that this power that comes up would be lamb-like, it would be Christ-like, but then it would also be, become like the devil. So, which is fascinating. Now, this uh, beast power, I want you to notice the first beast power is going down into captivity in 1798. That's when it received its mortal wound. It went down into captivity in 1798 and then it says this power, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. In other words, this power comes up at around the same time as the other power is going down. And for more than 150 years, <clears throat> this beast power has been identified as the United States of America. And let me tell you why and how that all fits in. There was a man by the name of John Wesley. We've spoken about him before. He was basically the founder of the Methodist movement today. If you've heard of the Methodist church, John Wesley was really the powerhouse that... Uh, was responsible for the raising up of the Methodist Church. The followers of John Wesley formed the Methodist Church. John Wesley was writing in 1754. Now, when did that first beast go into captivity? 1798. Try, try to follow along. <laughs> 1798. So John Wesley is writing in 1740, uh, 1754, and he's writing in notes on the book of Revelation. And he talks about this second beast power. And he says, he is not yet come, but he cannot be far off. For he is to appear at the end of the 42 months of the first beast. John Wesley didn't know who this power was. Because it hadn't arrived yet. But he says, he's not yet come in 1754, but he cannot be far off because he is to appear at the end of the 42 months of the first beast. John Wesley understood his Bible. And he understood that this power was soon to arise. Well, that was 1754. 1776, you have the Declaration of Independence in the United States. And then, after that, you also have the Constitution of the United States, 1787. The Bill of Rights, 1789. And the Bill of Rights was adopted in 1791. You have this... Power coming into being at the time when the other beast power is going down into captivity, the late 1700s. And when we look for a power that's coming into being at this time, I suppose you could think about Australia, couldn't you? Australia came into being about the same time, you know, um, in terms of European rule in, as a modern nation. But the Bible says that this power, and you'll see this in a moment, this power is going to become big enough to influence the whole world. So, sorry Australia. <laughs> Probably doesn't cut the mustard, right? But it could be Tasmania, right? But on the other hand. Um, so, whoever this power is, it comes up at this time in the late 1700s, just as the other power is going into captivity, and it becomes powerful enough to influence the entire world. And you've got to think about that. That's a relatively short period of time to grow into a nation that's going to dominate the world, right? 
I mean, that's a very short period of time. Let's read it again. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, out of a more sparsely populated uh, area. The other beast power came up out of the sea. Europe was teeming with people, whereas the United States of America had vast open lands. I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Some of those who have identified this power as the United States of America have suggested that those two horns, because it's two horns like a lamb, right? It was lamb-like. They've suggested that those two horns represent civil and religious liberty. These were the principles upon which the United States was built. They wanted a country without a king and they wanted a church without a pope. They wanted a place where they could practice religion according to their own conscience without the government or the, the state getting involved in what they wanted to do with worship. Many people fled to the United States fleeing European persecution, religious persecution. We find that hard to imagine today because we live in relative freedom, right? But that's what happened. You remember the, maybe you've heard of the Pilgrim Fathers that sailed on the Mayflower from Plymouth in England to Plymouth Rock in America. And they went there looking for religious liberty. And these two horns on the lamb represent civil and religious liberty. Notice what the next verse says. It says here, had two horns like a lamb and he spoke like a dragon. He's going to end up behaving more like the devil than Jesus. Notice the next verse. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast. Who was the first beast? Let's just shorten it to Rome. Let's just call it Rome. Okay? The first beast was Rome and it says of this second beast, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So this second power, whom I believe is to be the United States of America, will influence the world to worship the first beast. Now that is ironic because the United States predominantly has been a Protestant power. In other words, as I mentioned before, many people left Europe seeking religious liberty. They went to the United States and they were Protestant in terms of their Christian outlook. It was a Protestant nation. However, this verse tells us that it's going to cause the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, which is Rome. How could that happen? Well, it happens over a period of time. We come to the period of John F. Kennedy. Of course, John F. Kennedy, there was quite a lot of controversy over John F. Kennedy's election, and he won by a narrow margin, simply because John F. Kennedy was the first Roman Catholic president of the United States. Prior to that time, they'd all been Protestants, and John F. Kennedy was a Roman Catholic, and of course, he met with the newly elected Pope in July 1963, and I guess uh, relations between the Rome and the US began to thaw a little over time. A few decades later, you have the time of Ronald Reagan, and Ronald Reagan established the first US ambassador to the Vatican in 1984. Now, I want you to think about that. This is a powerful political nation but they send an ambassador to, effectively, a church. And that's because, of course, the papal power is 
a nation state. The Vatican is the smallest state in the world, but it is one of the most influential. So an ambassador was being appointed in 1984 and they've had one there ever since. During the time of Ronald Reagan, he and the Pope met on a number of occasions. This is in June 82 at the Vatican and then September 82 in Miami, Florida, the Pope came to the United States and they began to converse about how they might work together for mutual benefit for their both their powers. And this was um, Time Magazine's story in 1992 where it talked about, well it's called Holy Alliance, you can see that, how Reagan and the Pope conspired to assist Poland's solidarity movement and hasten the demise of communism. You see, the United States and the papal power had a common foe, and that was communism, because communism didn't support the religion of the Roman Catholic Church, and of course it was opposed to the capitalism of the West. And so this Time Magazine article just comments on that relationship that existed between Reagan and the Pope that they would work together to undermine communism in Eastern Europe and then finally, of course, uh, the Berlin Wall fell and uh, communism fell in the East. In 1994, we're just talking here about the relationship between the US and Rome and how it has sort of thawed over, or not only thawed, but now is starting to warm up over the, the decades. In May, June, 94, Christian American magazine it says there was a historical Christian declaration that was signed. Evangelical and Catholic leaders agree to work together. Well, this sounds great, right? It's good to work together, isn't it? But the Bible tells us this is heading someplace. Notice what it says. It continues in Revelation 13, verses 13 and 14. This is uh, the next few verses, next couple of verses. It says, he, talking about this American beast power, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. So what is this making fire come down from heaven? How could it possibly counterfeit that? How could that possibly happen? You know, there was a time in the Bible where it describes fire coming down from heaven. And we find in Acts chapter 2, at the beginning of the Christian church, at the birth of the Christian church, Acts chapter 2, you had the Holy Spirit poured out on the disciples as they were gathered there praying. And it says in Acts chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, it says, There appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, fire coming down from heaven, the Holy Spirit. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. A little further on it says, They were all amazed, the people that heard them, they were all amazed and marvelled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? When the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the disciples supernaturally received the gift of tongues and they were able to speak. And there were people from all around the Mediterranean who heard them in their own tongue, their own language, and they expressed that. Some people believe that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will speak in tongues, 
but you were speaking an unknown language, a language that is unintelligible to the human ear. Is it possible that there is a false outpouring of the Holy Spirit where there's this unintelligible tongue, unlike the one poured out on the disciples where people understood what they were saying and that this could be used as a sign to deceive the masses? It's interesting to think about that because you may or may not know that in the Roman Catholic Church last year they celebrated 50 years of the Catholic charismatic renewal. And there's a big bridge being built between charismatics in the United States and the Roman Catholic faith in terms of charismatics. Did you know that Pope Francis is a charismatic? And uh, he believes in that aspect of faith. So I think that was an interesting point to make. In Revelation chapter 13, it is really about who we worship. That is what this is about. And I want you to notice that in Revelation 13, it talks about worshipping the beast. And if we compare this with the first four commandments, the first commandment says, you shall... What does it say? You shall have no other gods before me, right? <laughs> I'm glad, glad we got there. Worship the beast. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. So... The beast would represent another god if we were worshipping that. The Bible says in Revelation 13 that we are to worship the image of the beast. We're going to come to that in a moment. The Bible says in the second commandment, you shall not bow down and worship images. In Revelation 13, it tells us that this beast power speaks blasphemies. The Bible says in the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And then the fourth command, sorry, in the, in the book of Revelation chapter 13, it also talks about the mark of the beast, which we'll talk about in the second session today. And the fourth commandment of the Bible says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Is there a connection between that and the Sabbath? We'll find out a little bit later. Revelation 13 verse 15, notice what it says here about this beast power, the United States. It says, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image, should both, the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Here you have this beast setting up an image to the other beast. In other words, it's going to make an image to that other beast power, that other religio-political power we call Rome. And it says it's going to cause people to worship that image, and if they won't, there will be consequences. People will be killed. That's what the Bible says. It's not what I'm saying. That's what the Bible says. This reminds me very much of another um, passage in Scripture in the book of Daniel. You remember in the book of Daniel chapter 2, we saw this great image and it represented the different nations. You remember that? It seems like a long time ago now. It was the beginning of our series. But in that passage, Daniel had told Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, you are this head of gold. But after you will come other kingdoms. However, I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar wanted to defy that part of the prophecy. So in Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar sets up an image and it is all of gold. And he calls all the administrators and officials from around the empire to the plains of Dura and he says, I'm going to set up this image 
and we're going to play some lovely music. And when you hear the music play, I want you to bow down to the image. And at that time, there were three Hebrews who would not bow down, and they stood, and they were the only ones standing. But the rest of the, the people there, I don't know how many people were there, thousands of people, all bowing down to this image. And the king had said, if you don't bow down to the image, you will be killed. And you may remember he'd prepared a fiery furnace, and uh, he says to them, if you don't bow down and worship the image, you're going to be killed, you're going to be thrown in the fiery furnace. And they says, we know that our God is able to deliver us, but if he doesn't, we want you to know we won't bow down to your image. And they were thrown in the fiery furnace, but God went in there with them, and they survived miraculously. In fact, the people who threw them in, the fire was so hot it burned them, and they died. But this story of worship the image of Babylon or be killed is repeated here in the book of Revelation. And it tells us that that's what this beast power will ultimately do. It will cause people to worship an image to that first beast. It goes on. It says he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now clearly this forbidding to buy or sell must take place before they're killed, right? Because it wouldn't be any good to tell them you can't buy or sell after they were killed. So you've got two incentives, if you like. If you don't comply, you won't be able to buy or sell. And if that doesn't work, there's the death threat, right? There's the death penalty. In a way, the United States has already behaved in this manner on a national sense, or on a global sense, I should say, uh, at least three times in the last sort of 25 years. You remember the first Gulf War? You're a little quiet tonight. Are you stunned? <laughs> Do you remember the first Gulf War? Some of them you weren't born. <laughs> First Gulf War, 19, uh, what is it, 91 in January. I remember being in the United States in 1990. I was visiting a friend over there. And I remember when Saddam Hussein's tanks rolled into Kuwait. And when that happened, I remember George Bush Sr. coming on the TV in America, live on television, and uh, telling the world that Saddam Hussein has got so much time to get out, they're going to be economic boycott. You can't buy or sell. And if you don't get out by a certain time, we're sending in the bombers and people are going to get killed. And so that's exactly what happened. In uh, the 17th of January, was it, 1991, the bombers rained down on Baghdad and uh, ultimately forced the retreat of Saddam Hussein's forces and Kuwait was liberated and everything settled down for a couple of years. But of course then there was 9-11, and they did the same thing with Afghanistan. They said, surrender the terrorists, we're going to place you under economic boycott, and if you don't surrender them by a such and such a date, we're sending in the planes. And they did the same thing with the Gulf War Mark II. So what I'm trying to say to you is the United States has behaved in this manner on a global scale already in international conflict, but this is going to be uh, on a much different scale. You know, after the first Gulf War, Yasser Arafat, who was the leader of the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organisation, he described Washington DC as what? The New Rome. Why is that? 
Because what he was saying was that Rome used to be the universal power that nobody could you know, threaten in its day and the United States seems to be that militarily today, according to him. Maybe you remember Bob Carr. I think he was Premier here once, right? For about 10 years or something. But Bob Carr, was inter- he was uh, on a program in 2003 after America had invaded Afghanistan and had invaded uh, Iraq. You remember that it wanted support for invading Iraq and it went to the United Nations and the United Nations nation said, no, we're not going to give you wholesale endorsement to invade Iraq. And America says, okay, we're going anyway. And they went. And after that, uh, the Gulf War, the second Gulf War, they had this program called What the World Thinks of America and Bob Carr described America as the new Rome. That's interesting, isn't it? Because the Bible says that this power, whoever it is, is going to form an image to the first power which represents Rome. You know, the United States is the world's preeminent superpower politically, militarily, that's still true. Financially, that's still true. And you know, a few years ago, I think it was 2008, I think, China surpassed Japan as the world's second largest economy. And at that time, it still only had an economy one-third the size of the United States. So financially, what do we measure all our finances against? The US dollar, right? Isn't that true? And then, of course, culturally, television, Hollywood, fashion, fast food, internet... We get it all from the States. They have a a cultural um, invasion, if you like, of the world through their various cultural means. How many of you own a baseball cap? Lots of you. How many play baseball? None of you, (laughs) right? But we've all got jeans and we've all got baseball caps and we all, you know, get our fast food from American outlets. And so it is indeed the world's superpower. This was interesting in 2005 when Pope John Paul II died. You had never had a United States president attend a papal funeral before. It had never happened. But when Pope John Paul II died, you had George Bush Sr., George Bush Jr. and Bill Clinton all kneeling before the body of the Pope. And this is significant. And on the, this was the front cover of the Daily Telegraph, an Australian newspaper. And it said, in the caption underneath, it says, These, this trio of Protestant, Protestant presidential heavyweights. It used the word Protestant because it recognised power and passion of a moment in history. It recognised this is a major event. You have three Protestant presidents kneeling before the body of the deceased Pope. Now, I don't know if I mentioned this before, and maybe uh, we just want to clarify it at the moment. Do you know what a Protestant is? A Protestant is one who protests. And what they protest is the unbiblical practices of Rome. That's what a Protestant is. That's where the term came from. And so here we have this Warming of relations. And then you have Time magazine a few years ago, 2008, Why the Pope Loves America. And you have this coming together of the two nations in a far more um, cooperative fashion. A few years ago, in 2014, there was an evangelical, charismatic 
conference in Fort Worth, Texas. And there were charismatic leaders from across the United States gathered together. Um, Kenneth Copeland was leading the whole program. And then, amazingly, they said, and we're just going to have a video message now from Pope Francis. And he came on the video screen and issued a message to that group of charismatic Americans, which was un- like it was unprecedented. That had never happened before. And he says in that message, let's pray to the Lord that he unites us all. Come on, we're all brothers. And this is a very big theme of Pope Francis too. He wants to unite all the churches. And hey, ordinarily that sounds like a great idea, right? But we must unite upon the authority of the word of God and not upon the teachings of men. He invited those charismatic leaders to the Vatican and they went in June of that year, uh, took place, that meeting. Again, there was another gathering of evangelical charismatics. It was called the John 17 movement, that they all may be one. I'm going to talk a little bit about this tomorrow morning. Please don't miss tomorrow morning. And in that, he again issued a video message to this conference and he says, division is a wound. He's saying division's the devil's idea. We need to to come together. Problem is, if we all come together, who's going to lead us? I think he thinks he will. And I want you to notice this. When the Pope visited America in 2015, Time magazine printed this, the new Roman Empire, the global reach of Pope Francis. And he addressed, for the first time in history, he addressed the joint houses of the sitting of Congress. And so this is, this is where laws are made in the United States. And you have Pope Francis addressing this whole body. You know, another th- interesting point that we could make is that America is probably the most powerful Protestant country in the world and it has a Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court is made up of nine justices. And right now, in 2017, they appointed a new one Neil Gorsuch, up there on the right-hand corner. Right now, you have six Roman Catholics and three Jews on the Supreme Court. There's not a Protestant there. And that has implications for the future of America when it comes to religious freedom. You'll see why in our second session, hopefully. But the Bible says of this second beast, which we believe to be the United States, he exercises all the authority of the first beast, Rome, in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. We're seeing history in the making. We really are. Thomas Malady, he was a US ambassador to the Vatican. By the way, every ambassador that the US has sent to the Vatican, what religion do you think they've been? Roman Catholic. So when a United States ambassador who is a Roman Catholic goes to the Vatican as ambassador, whose interests do you believe that they would be representing? He said this, US ambassador to the Vatican, a former US ambassador to the Vatican, he says, I believe that the United States as the world's only superpower and the Holy See, that's the Vatican, 
as the only worldwide moral political sovereignty, have significant roles to play in the future. Their actions will impact the lives of people in all parts of the globe. I think that's right. I think he's more right than he probably knows. And so these two powers are going to end up working closer together. Why is this important? I want to show you something in this third angel's message. We've been talking about these three angel's messages of the Revelation chapter 14. And I just want to show you the third angel's message here. Notice what it says. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image... Now, we've just been talking about the beast, Rome, and his image, which will be formed by America. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark, we'll talk about that in our next presentation, on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. In the Bible, you will find no more fierce warning than this. It's the most severe warning given in the Bible. And I believe that that's the case because the Bible foresees a time ahead of us, we haven't got there yet, a time ahead of us that represents the most dangerous period in Earth's history. And you can appreciate that when you have the most danger, then the more severe the warning. The greater the danger, the more severe the warning. You ever seen those fire danger signs? And it goes all the way over to catastrophic. When you see the needle pointed at catastrophic, you better leave town, right? Because the greater the danger, the more severe the warning. Here in this third angel's message, there is no more severe warning in all of the Bible. And it warns us not to worship the beast or its image. And I think you'll see why, hopefully, in the next session. Revelation 18.4 is a message for God's people to come out of that beast power. It says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. God is given, giving... Uh, plain instruction for us to come out of Babylon and into his arms, effectively. We're going to talk about the remnant. There is a remnant church that God has. It's written in, up in the Bible. We want to talk, talk about that tomorrow morning. But he's calling people, God is calling people out of Babylon into his remnant. That's what he's doing today through these messages. Well, finally, to wrap up, I want you to notice something. I'm going to wrap up on a good note. In Revelation chapter 15, it depicts the saints having been overcomers and are standing with, with God. It says, And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. And the song of the Lamb saying, Great and marvellous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. God's people are pictured, pictured here at the end of time, up in heaven, with God, on the sea of glass. 
And it says they have victory over the beast and over his image. And so we need to understand something of these things. It'll become a little clearer in the next couple of sessions, but it's important to understand who these two beast powers are.